Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, my name is Tom. I'm sending this in because I think I represent possibly an atypical portion of your demographics. I'm 60 years old. I've been having sex with the same woman for the last 40 years. I've never taken psychedelics and I love your podcast. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. That is fucking awesome, man. Congratulations to you and to your woman. That sounds... uh... You know, it's it's the sign of um, uh, a well-balanced intelligence that we're not threatened by that which is different from us. And um, so I'm always really appreciative when I meet somebody who's like, you know, I get what you're saying. I like listening to you. I don't agree with you, but I like it. Uh, I don't live my life the way you live your life, but it's cool to listen to. I, that's I love people like that. My parents are like that. You know, I come out with this fucking Sex at Dawn book 11 years ago. And, um, you know, I I won't say I was worried about it because my dad was editing the book as I wrote it. So, you know, every chapter that uh, I finished, I sent off to him before anyone else saw it except Casilda. And uh, so he knew what was in it. And he and my mom, I'm sure, talked about what the book was about. But it didn't matter to them. They'd been married their whole lives. I think they've only, they only had sex with each other in their entire lives. And, you know, the irony of that wasn't lost on them, I'm sure. But they didn't feel threatened by it. They didn't feel judged by it. They didn't feel that it really um, had anything to do with them. Um, you know, aside from the sort of obvious psychodynamic things you know we talk about we live our parents unlived lives and all that kind of stuff um anyway i just think it's fucking cool when when people do that and and i hope i do it i probably don't do it as much as i should um but i think it's a it's a very healthy thing so thank you tom atypical tom for reminding us of that that uh, i'm not only only talking to 25 year old dudes who are you know trying to figure out how to live a non-monogamous high travel lifestyle with lots of mushrooms there are other people thrown in there as well and you are all most welcome this episode is with a really interesting dude named roger nygaard i met him long ago he was doing a, a documentary um about relationships and and marriage and the challenges of the modern relationship as you'll hear and he interviewed me probably a year or two after sex at dawn came out and he's one of several people that i've become friends with through that route of being interviewed by them and then hanging out tal ruspoli is another one um that comes to mind roger's uh, an old friend of jake johansson's and uh so that's actually how I met Jake, I believe. Roger introduced me to, to Jake. 
Um, so anyway, he's a, he's a good friend, a really cool guy, documentary filmmaker, feature filmmaker, and he, for I think six seasons, has been the editor of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, so he works uh, hand in glove with Larry David, and uh, we talk a lot about comedy, about working with Larry, about what makes that show special um rogers also he writes books and he's he's a dude who really gets a lot done um but he's also very chill so uh he's he's a great guy to talk to um anyway this episode is brought to you by (laughs) this is a funny one my buddy kyle tierman who you all know big wave surfer santa cruz roused about now living in his What's it called? Uh, He's got a camper. I forget what it's called. It's got like Starfire or some goofy name. Anyway, he is working with um, Shane and the boys down at Mudwater, and uh, they've hired him to set up uh, an editorial content uh, arm of Mudwater. So they've got a, a short podcast called Trends with Benefits. It's a weekly short form show with uh, about 10 minute episodes uh hosted by kyle he recommends you start with the uh, rick doblin or jody armor episodes it's uh it's a new thing it's just launched rick doblin of course is the uh the president of maps multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies um his work is is underlies a lot of the the work to legalize psychedelics for clinical use and and i i think they also support recreational use but i know that clinical and research have been their primary foci over the years and jody armor uh has been on this podcast as is rick of course and jody armor is a law professor uh, I think at USC, maybe UCLA, but down in LA somewhere. And he specializes in prison reform and racial injustice and a really smart guy, really interesting. Um, they also, trendswithbenefits.com, also has um, stories, kind of blog entries about psychedelics, adventure, and so on. I wrote one for them about uh, my uh, first couple of weeks in India, uh, Tim Cahill has written one. Kyle's written a few. Tim Cahill's been on the podcast. He's one of the founders of Outside Magazine. Fantastic writer. So uh, anyway, you can sign up for the newsletter there and they send it out once a week. Trendswithbenefits.com. Other things I wanted to mention, the tumblers uh, that uh, Sandy Ceramics made for us are going fast. I only mentioned them on one podcast and I think we probably sold... I don't know, maybe maybe 15, maybe a little more, maybe 20. And I think he only made 35 or so, something like that. I forget how big the first batch was. But if you want one of these um, very cool tumblers, go check out. Uh, they're on my website uh, in the store, of course. And you can see them there. Each one is different color. You know, the, the way the glaze comes out is a little different. But they're the same design. They're really cool. 40 bucks, shipping, handling, everything included. Um, mainland North America only. Sorry, everybody else, but the shipping gets too crazy and we didn't want to charge too much. You'll see on the website, I try to keep the prices really low. Uh, I know people are charging $40, $45 for t-shirts and stuff. And 
Um, but honestly, it's not about making a lot of money. It's about like keeping my mom engaged. She loves doing this stuff. And, uh, you know, she makes a little money on each shirt or whatever you buy, stickers and all that. Um, and also just, it's cool. Sometimes I run into people wearing the shirts and it's fucking awesome. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that if you, I doubt this is the case with anyone, but if somebody actually wants to hear me talk more about the way of the superior man, uh, you can listen to an episode that I did with Anya Kotz on her podcast, uh, Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. It's episode 80. And uh, we talked about the book and the sort of, you know, uh, relationship advice contained therein. Uh, I thought it was interesting to to get a woman's perspective on it as well. So, um, you know, on the off chance that you're not sick of hearing me talk about that, uh, you can listen to me talking about it with her. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, recent Roma, I talked about that book and my reactions to it. All right, I think that's about it. I am going to just shut the fuck up and let you listen to Roger Nygaard, who is way more interesting and uh, fascinating guy. We talk about his various films and books and other projects that he's got going on. Super interesting cat. You can check him out at uh, Roger Nygaard, N-Y-G-A-R-D dot com. He's done... Movies about everything from Trekkies to uh, existentialism to uh, Roswell to car salesmen. Uh, the Truth About Marriage is the is the movie that he interviewed me for. Uh, he's worked with, um, as I said, Larry David, but also uh, he's done Veep. He edited Veep. He's worked with The Office, the people from The Office. I think he directed some of those episodes. Um and uh, what's his name? Sasha Baron Cohen. He worked on, on some of those movies, Borat movies and all that. So he's really been around. Definitely a dude worth checking. All right. Last thing I'm going to say is that I did recently, I was a guest on a podcast called Dirt from the Road, which is hosted by a dude named Brett Newski. Uh, I've played some of his music on the podcast before. He's a funny guy. I like his vibe. He, uh, I think it was him and another dude, he and another dude were like, did a, what's it called? Um, like a pop-up concert. Uh, they just went into a Walmart and started playing music and they videotaped themselves getting kicked out of Walmart for being too musical and merry and creating a disturbance in the halls of a Walmart. This is a sacred place, man. Anyway, I like Brett Newski, so I uh, I did his podcast. You can check it out. It's called Dirt from the Road. And this is Brett, and this is from his album Life Upside Down. It's the title track, Life Upside Down. What happens when the bottom falls out? Somebody talk to me tonight especially. This is my life upside down And if you hear from me Almost certainly It's cause the bottom's falling out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so perfectly when my life's upside down. I need small dreams, somewhere to sink my teeth, something to wrap my brain around. I woke up, the smoke was gone. I spoke up. Start this. All right. I am speaking with Roger Nygaard. How are you, buddy? Good. Yeah, it's been a long time, but uh, it's really fun. Always fun to talk to you. I've really been excited to, to talk to you again. Well, great. I mean, since the, la- when, the last time we saw each other, was it in a restaurant in Portland, Oregon? When, yes. I remember you- we had oh, dinner a long time ago with you and your wife, and then uh, that was after I had in- interviewed a couple of uh, people who were getting married at a fairy festival just outside of Eugene. That's right, and and that made it into the movie, right? Yeah, it sure did. Yeah, they were very yeah. interesting. <laughs> I remember that scene. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I've already done a you know a, an intro, so people know who you are and and some of the things you've done. Uh, so we don't need to do all that live. But uh, that was, a, what's the name of the movie? The Truth About Love and Marriage? The Truth About the, Marriage, yeah. The Truth About Marriage, okay. And, it, and I found the truth. What is the truth? <laughs> it's a big mess. <laughs> everybody's doing it wrong. What I found out is everybody's doing it wrong to some degree or another. Some less wrong than others. And they're the happiest ones. But they're sort of lucking into it through trial and error. Uh, I've right. not been married, no. So that's part of the beauty, I think, is it's a it's a single guy pontificating about marriage, <laughs> which you know the Catholic Church has a long tradition of doing these things, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, who who knows more about sex than your priest? Like, are you kidding me? What are we talking about here? <laughs> they might have some uh, ulterior motives going on there that has to do with revenues and uh, keeping people. Off balance, and one of the things I learned in the prior documentary, The Nature of Existence, where I talked to a lot of priests and religious people, is that the Catholic Church has this amazing business strategy that's been going on for centuries where if they can make you feel bad about what are essentially natural feelings, mm. the, the seven deadly sins, right? Sloth, greed, these are just natural feelings. If they can make you feel bad about them and that you need to come to church and give money to be absolved to feel better, weekly, they've got this, it's a great business paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you create an all-seeing entity that that generates that shame, even if you don't feel it naturally within yourself. You know, like if you don't believe masturbation is necessarily a, a problem, God is watching you at all times. So we've got total surveillance and you need to come to us for to buy your way out of it. It's it's an amazing scam. I'm sure you've heard George Carlin's, 
you know, rants on that. It's just such a great scam. Yeah. Well, all right. So you've, so the secret to marriage or to, to love again is what is, is stumbling around and figuring it out by accident. Was that your conclusion? (laughs) Well, it's really interesting. One of the reasons I tracked you down after reading Sex at Dawn is, you know, I thought I got, I've got to interview this guy because your writing is sort of the way you speak. It's really captivating. And I found it, you you lived up to your uh, my expectations. I, I'd say of all the people I've enter, ever interviewed, there's three people who were the best wordsmiths. And you're one of them. You, Richard Dawkins, and David Gilbert, who wrote Stumbling on Happiness, were people that I could sit down with and ask questions and everything you said was easy to snip and put into a into my documentary or fascinating or interesting and so i tracked you down because i read your book and i wanted to learn um why people are having so much trouble why is it so hard to be in a relationship something's wrong and what i discovered through your help and many other people that i talked to like uh the gottmans and you obviously know you know who the gottmans are john gottman said that relationships, every relationship naturally deteriorates over time, unless you put conscious energy into it. So clearly it's not something that happens naturally, like breathing or eating or swimming, if you're, you know, if you're trying to stay alive and not drown. Some things happen naturally, but how to be in a relationship is not something that we naturally have within us for some reason. One of the reasons was at the core was that the way that we are expected to behave in relationships is out of sync with who we are as a species. And we talked a lot about that. You talk about that in your book to a great, great length and why that is and how we evolved to be a certain way on the African savanna. And now we live in this new environment. And I found your new book fascinating and added another layer, actually, to this puzzle, um, Civilized to Death, I I was blown away by uh, many things, but one in particular was when you described Bruce Alexander's experiments about the rat, uh, rats living in cages, typical rats versus rats living in the the fun land where there's mm. there's females and males and they've got all sorts of toys and everything they could want and it's it's an ideal rat existence versus these rats that are kind of solitary and there's nothing to do except sit in a cage and be uncomfortable, and the way that they. Uh, tested how they felt was they had two types of water. One was laced with morphine, or heroin basically, and regular water. And they found that the rats in the fun park would sample it a few times and then ignore it and then drink the regular water, whereas the caged rats would uh, get hooked on heroin basically. And so something was, the the rats with with nice lives didn't need to get hooked on drugs. And it's such a great analogy for human beings, and it made me I want to ask you a question. Do you think that those rats in the Funland had better relationships as well? Yeah, well, the rats who were in isolation, by definition, had no relationships, right? So right. that's kind of a trick question. That would um, suck. Yeah, but but yeah, I, I mean, I, I see where you're going and how that, that sort of circles around to... Um, you know, Gottman's uh, theory of relationship deterioration or, or kind of like a uranium sample or something. Uh, and I, I question that, you know, I, I feel like there are certain 
um, aspects of relationships that do weaken with time, right? Uh, the attraction of novelty, right? Which is something we wrote about in Sex at Dawn. Like humans are very attracted to novelty in food in you know, you don't eat the same dish every night. You don't watch the same movies. You don't listen to the same music. You don't travel to the same countries. You know, it's like we like change, which is just an aspect of intelligence, I think. So that definitely wears down over time with familiarity. But then there's a deeper kind of intimacy that accumulates if you have a good relationship and you spend a lot of time with someone, you know, a, a deep acceptance and a, a compassion and a kindness and, a, you know, having been through a lot together, uh, there's a lot of value in that. So I feel like, you know, it, like everything else, it's a yin and a yang situation. Um, but the getting shared to experiences the, are something that are unique, right? That you, you can't replace. You've got to start over again with somebody new. Exactly. And, and I think you get to a certain age in life when, you know, it's like, do I have to tell all these fucking stories again? Like, really? Do I have to, like, explain the nuance of my relationship with my mother again? You know, like, it's one of the beauties of having a podcast. If I if I get into a new relationship, I'll just be like, hey, go listen to the 450 episodes of that podcast and you'll know me and get back to me. Um, but um I actually met a woman, uh, it's this funny, weird situation, but this woman, uh, was like, Hey, I, I see you're alone. You know, I was working on a book somewhere and she's like, can I come visit you? And she sent me some pictures and like, damn, yeah, you can come visit. And she came and, uh, and I said to her, like, it's kind of risky for you to just, you know, go visit some dude in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, just out of the blue like that. And she's like, I didn't take any risk. I've been listening to your podcast for years. I know exactly who you are. I know all your friends. You're the one who took the risk. I could be crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> shit, you're right. <laughs> but funny. She turned it right around. She flipped it on me. She sure did. Um, but the, uh, you know, the point with the Gottmans, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, uh, relationships are a lot of work. You have to really work at it. And I think, well, if a relationship is that much work, maybe it's the wrong relationship. So what, what conclusions did you come to uh, after, you know, doing all these interviews and speaking to all these, these experts? Do you think a good relationship requires work? Because to me, work is by definition putting effort into something you'd rather not be doing. Well, you made a great point by asking the question, is it the right relationship? And we tend to imprint like ducklings on somebody who shows us affection or attention, and we begin to build up shared experiences. And now we have an investment and a stake in keeping this relationship going, even if it's the wrong one. And this entire industry of therapists exists to help people keep relationships going that may not yeah. be the right one, but it's the best one. That's all they've got, and they're afraid of starting over again. One of the therapists, John Friel, said, typically when couples come in to see him, it's like going to the emergency room and saying, I broke my leg seven years ago. Can you fix it? And <laughs> why didn't you come in when you were hurting the first time? Because yeah. that's when I could have helped you. And a little course correction versus now you got to be, we got to re-break the leg and put it in traction and rebuild everything. 
in order to try and keep force you two to stay together so you can protect these shared experiences. So something was wrong, something's going on, and it's all about our culture. The culture we live in has evolved so much more rapidly than we have as a species and what was natural in the African savanna. What people there didn't need counselors <laughs> when they lived in their tribe of 150, of Dunbar's number of 150 or whatever. They existed they day to day to just try to survive and survival in a group is much more likely than survival alone. So they were motivated to get along, to pull, do their share, to do practice what we call, what the religions now call, and we, society calls morality, they practiced reciprocal altruism. Everybody shared, trade, traded favors and knew who owed who and who was pulling their weight and who wasn't. And if you weren't, you were ostracized. And I know you argued in your book that they shared everything, and very likely sex as well. And so we're very much more proprietary about sex now than we used to be, and that's a cultural outgrowth of the way monogamy became the rule of our current culture because there's so many people that it, w it followed polygamy. Polygamy was the middle step from this hunter-gatherer existence where everybody shared everything, and then once they stayed in one place because they discovered agriculture, certain men typically gathered more resources than others and became more powerful and began gathering more women and that becomes unstable for society to have one man with so many women because that means there's a bunch of men, young men, without women who are going to be very unhappy and that, that creates instability. So eventually society's figured out we need to outlaw this multiple women thing. It's one man, one woman. It may suck, you know, or be contrary to what we want but it's better for society. So we're sort of there now practicing this, it's sort of a public monogamy, but it's really a serial monogamy, right? Where we have to just jettison the old one every time we take a new one on to maintain this public persona that's required by society. So that makes it hard for everyone in relationships to exist. So they go to therapists to give them tools. And half of my documentary was about, well, what are the tools that we need to get along with each other better, to make each other feel better and more recognized and to, to be happier as a couple. And you wouldn't need all these tools if you were existing in a way, in the in the rat park, perhaps, where, where your life was much more designed for what's natural and, and for humans. And I remember you once told me, when you looked at two different kinds of zoos, if you look at the zoo where animals are in cages, or you go to the San Diego Zoo, or something like that, where you create an environment that's more natural, for the animals, they're much happier, probably, because they can be and closer to what is natural for them. And so you pose the question, do we want to create for ourselves an environment that more uh, re replicates what's natural for us as a species? Because right now we're sort of like these rats, closer to rats in cages than the animals at the San Diego Zoo. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and the cage <clears throat> is, uh, in many cases what you described earlier where people have an investment in a relationship and even if it's not a relationship that allows them to grow like a small cage restricts your growth and movement um they're afraid to leave it and you know i think we have to acknowledge that in some cases they have every reason to be afraid to leave it uh you know they've maybe it's that accumulated ex shared experience we've talked about you've been with someone 40 years it's that's a lot to give up you know um, maybe it's kids that you're raising together. Maybe it's 
you know, financial entanglement that like if you left the relationship, you'd be homeless. You know, who knows? A friend of mine said he, 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 he boiled it down to, you know, it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> well, you know, financially, uh, but when you're talking that way, what, what are the other costs, you know? Um, <laughs> But, you know, in Rat Park, which which I guess is a in our metaphor here, an image of our ancestral environment, people weren't trapped by kids. That, that was one of the main things that we wanted to argue in Sex at Dawn. Like, you know, you have kids, but we don't even know who the father is and nobody really cares. So if your relationship with this guy goes sour, there's no need for you to stay in a, in a bad relationship, right? You're not trapped by finances or parental obligations, because those things were shared um, pretty universally across the group. And if there's bad feeling, you or the other person can just go join another group because there are lots of other hunter-gatherer bands around and the fission fusion is what um, the anthropologist describes. So these groups come together and break apart and come together and break apart. And each time they separate seasonally normally because of, um, you know, reduction in the amount of food that's available. They break into smaller groups and the con- the uh, composition of those groups shifts. So this season I might be with these folks. Next season I go with these folks. So it's easy to walk away from a bad situation in that environment as opposed to now where so many people are trapped in a situation that uh, isn't working for them. So and not only yeah. that easy, it maybe is expected, right, in some environments or some some uh, social situations where people expect to change partners sometimes or seasonally. Right, right. Because everything changes. It's 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 a normal part of life. Whereas in a agricultural uh, based society, stability is what you want, right? Your property lines stay your property lines. Those aren't sort of shifting with what happens with the rains. You know, it's it's. Very different way of looking at things. I like um, that you you mentioned. I think it was a quote in your book. You said, "Endless growth is the ideology is the ideology of conventional economics and the cancer cell." Yeah, and that's what we're expecting uh, is this endless growth of our economy and population. And it's, yeah. I mean, the there's an there's an ending point to that. And with cancer, it's death, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, well, and also there's, uh, you know, until before we get to that ending point, there's also, I think, a diminishment of quality of life. You know, their scale is the friend of the industrialist, but the enemy of the individual, because the quality of our experience, it's kind of like there's a, and I think I wrote about this in Civilized to Death, there's, there's a, it's almost as if there's a, a, a limited supply of quality of life. And, you know, up to maybe a billion people on the planet, there was plenty for everyone. But at some point, it started getting reduced. And now we see that, you know, the quality of life that we enjoy in the Western world comes at the expense of people in China and these factories who are, you know, churning out our iPhones for uh, a pittance and jumping out the windows. And, you know, it's like, there's a, we're starting to see there's a connection, uh, in human quality of life, also in resource extraction, you know, this all this plastic has to go somewhere. So it's washing up on beaches in the South Pacific. And, you know, it's just, 
the 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 limits to to growth are becoming more and more apparent and it's finally i think starting to affect our quality of life in interesting ways which you know who knows what that's going to do but i always say on this podcast if you want to be an environmentalist don't have kids and then do whatever the fuck you want after that. You know, you can burn plastic, you can fly around on jet airplanes, but just don't have kids and your impact will be very limited. I don't know if that works out mathematically, but that's how, how I justify my ridiculous lifestyle. Well, it seems like it should. It, it, it's very <laughs> difficult for people, though, because they've got this internal drive that says must have children and can't be happy unless you have children. And it, <laughs> when, uh, when I interviewed uh, Dan Gilbert, who I mentioned, who you know, wrote Stumbling on Happiness, I asked him a question about, are we happier, are couples happier who have children versus couples that don't have children? Hmm. And he had studied that, and he said that they tested people, they took 50 couples or whatever the number was, with and without kids, and had them fill out daily questionnaires of how happy they are by the hour, numerically, so they could compare. And what they found, once they crunched all those numbers, it was that both group was about equally happy. The people without children were slightly happier. Uh, but the, the reason for that, he found, was that when you don't have kids, you can do whatever you want. You can go on vacations. You have more money to spend. You don't have to pay for braces in private school. You don't have to clean vomit out of your eyes. You know, you don't have to. You can do what you want. Right? It's your life. The people with children, it's very found. It's it's very difficult. It's hard work, and they would rate their interaction with children at about the same enjoyment level as vacuuming and house cleaning. Very not pleasant and difficult. There, there's less sleep. Their, their kids are, are, are difficult. They're very selfish little units that want me, what I, you know, they want what they want, and you have to deal with that. However, he said what brought the ratio back up to about even is that occasionally, every once in a while, they would have moments of extreme happiness when they would experience, Daddy, I love you. Here's my report card. Things like that, which the people without kids, they just don't have that experience. Yeah. No, that's I'm sure that's true. I I uh freely acknowledge that there are experiences that I've missed in this life not having had kids and and that they're important experiences and beautiful and and I would have grown and learned things by being a father that you know, I've missed. Um but as you say, it's it's a trade-off. And, you know, I wonder to in his study, because I, I, I've read his books and I remember his discussion of that. And I remember at the time thinking, what's interesting because what he's incorporating into this calculation are those extreme beautiful extremely beautiful moments when you know your kid gets into college or marries somebody who you really love and you know or or the experience of having grandchildren must be awesome you know if you really love who your child hooked up with and you know you see this this transmission of love going into the future i mean those are indescribably beautiful and profound but there's the but other he, side of the coin too. Your child might be a sociopath. Or your grandchild might be a murderer, exactly. and then your your name is mud forever. That's and then that's <laughs> the extreme unhappiness that accompanies right. that. You're rolling the dice. 
does Daniel Gilbert talk about that? Or if your your child is born, you know, disabled with some severe, you know, medical condition, and you've got to spend the rest of your life, you know, trying to deal with that. Or, yeah, or if you just don't like your kids. Like, I have, and I'm sure you do too, like, there are plenty of people who have kids who in private have said to me, Chris, I love my kids, right? But they have faces, they have names, they have identities. And now that they exist, I love them. But if I could go back in time and not have kids, I would not have kids. I've heard that you too know. from people. Save yourself, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. You know, and I, so I do think that there's a, a sense where this having kids thing is kind of similar to, you know, you know that you, you might have even referred to this in your movie. It's been a long time since I saw it, but you know that famous press conference um, with Margaret Mead, where she talks about marriage. She's talking, you know, obviously she wrote about coming of age in Samoa. She's, you know, a very famous anthropologist in the twenties. Uh, one of the first like serious female public intellectuals in American life, the most famous anthropologist in the world. And she wrote about the sort of sexual permissiveness in the South Pacific. And so she got a lot of criticism from uptight old white men. Um, a lot of the same ones who, you know, hated sex at dawn, that, that, that genre, that sort of realm of people. But uh, there was this press conference she gave where she said uh, she was talking about, you know, different ways of, of uh, managing relationships in different cultures. And one of the journalists said to her, um, Dr. Mead, you have been in three failed relationships. Uh, what gives you the right to talk about this issue as an authority? And she said, because she had been married to three different men, right? And she said, um, excuse me, I've been married to three fantastic men, all of whom remain great friends of mine. None of my marriages has been a failure. You know, I, I mean, I just love that questioning the premise, you know. Uh, and we have this idea that if a, if a relationship doesn't last till death do you part, that it's a failure, who the fuck decides that? Is it the same, you know, closeted gay priest who's giving you sex advice on your honeymoon? It's like there's this is nonsense. We don't say if you change careers, you're a failure at your first career. We don't say if you sell your house and move to a new town because you want to be by the beach that, you know, your life in the mountains was a failure. Nothing's a failure except this when when we and and. Yet we have this understanding that we need to be growing as individuals. We change. We're all following a path toward, you know, our own growth and our own self-actualization. And sometimes those paths diverge. Uh, of course they do. So, you know, I question this premise that that relationships that don't last forever are failures uh, or that change. Um, and I also, you know, uh, relating that to parenthood. I think there's this cultural assumption that if you don't have kids, you're some sort of a failure because you're whatever your DNA isn't going on into the future or some bullshit like that. But I, I don't think there's any rational reason for that. I don't even think the biological clock is a real thing. 
I, you know, do you? I think it can get triggered. I mean, I know people, my, my uh, sister-in-law, who said, I would never want children, never, not interested. She got pregnant, and then afterward, it was like, I can't imagine my life without my child. And yeah. so you're, the brain well, sure. gets rewired, right? Evolution is designed that. Sure, sure. But that's, I mean, that's the same with anything, right? Like if you, you know, you have no interest in going to China and then you meet a Chinese woman and fall in love and end up moving back to Shanghai with her. And then five years later, we're talking about it. You're going to say, I can't imagine my life without having met Yun Li and moving to Shanghai. You know, of course you can't because that's what your life has been, you know. Shanghai is so, an amazing city. I mean, if you, is it? If, if you, it's stunning. It's a, I've it, never been to China. I went there uh, two years ago because I had to get some money out of China. I sold a screenplay to a Chinese production company, and they can't just wire you money overseas. Be there are rules against wiring money internationally and how much money can leave China. So I had to figure out how to get my money out of China. <laughs> That's <laughs> So you great. take some in love... cash, and then you, you, yeah. you pay someone. You find someone you trust. Because they can wire up to $50,000 per person per year if they have a good excuse like sending money for a child who has school. They've got to pay for their mm. school in America. So if you can find, let's say you've got $150,000 you need to get out of China, you've got to find three people who you can trust and you pay them 500 bucks to put the money in their account then they wire it back to you. Wow. And if they don't, you're pretty vulnerable. Oh, there's nothing you can do. If, if, yeah, if you trusted them and then they, they stab you in the back, they've got your money. Yeah, or they die. Yeah, you know? right. It, yeah. <laughs> Get hit by a bus like, oh, shit, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You, but you I went to, just but like... Shanghai is amazing. It's really incredible. I mean, Shanghai and Hong Kong are two of the most incredible cities I've ever seen in my life. And like the skylines make New York almost look oh, yeah. paltry by comparison. Yeah, sure. Well, in the airport, I mean, go through JFK versus, you know, one of these Asian airports. I've never been to Shanghai, but, you know, Bangkok, you know, anywhere, Singapore, like, yeah, it's, it's, you can see the future is in Asia, definitely. The, the money, the, the, the newness, the, the innovation, it's all kind of shifted. Yeah. You've traveled a lot. That's that's something you and I have in common. Yeah. I stare at the it, map every day and go, where should I go next? And then I imagine you know, it and I make plans yeah. and I research. And then I eventually, then I go. People can't see this because it's audio only, but there's a, a map over Roger's shoulder on the wall. And I have owned that same map probably five times I've bought that map because it's the colors are so rich and, and beautiful. Most maps are very pale kind of coloration, but that one's got, and it's also this nice uh, kind of weird material. It's not paper, but it's, yeah, it's not laminate. glossy. And partly what I searched for was a map where the contours of the world, the continents and the countries was more accurate. Most maps you look at are very inaccurate in terms of size. The United States yeah. looks much larger in respect to something like Africa or South America than it really is because there's a natural bias apparently to map makers you know it's also a globe that's pressed flat so it's very right. difficult to make it ac accurate but uh, I'd like to know what it really is like instead of the, somebody else's version of what they think you know is more important 
Yeah. I like the maps where everything's upside down, you know, because it makes the point that there is no up and down in space, right? There's, right. there's no top and bottom. It's all arbitrary. Uh, yeah. If you were to ask me this question, what is that makes my life the happiest? And because, you know, there's this whole thing about the pursuit of happiness, which I learned in The Nature of Existence. When I interviewed Julia Sweeney, I asked her, how do we find happiness? And she said, I was the first to hear this from her. She said, happiness is not a goal. You can't pursue happiness. It's a side effect of having a purpose in life. So you have got to ask yourself, what is your purpose? And figure right. that out. And you, and you have to give yourself a purpose. Nobody's going to give it to you. They'll try, and you can accept what society gives you and probably be very unhappy. But if you give yourself a purpose that's in line and sync with what and who you are, you will be a much happier person. And for most people, the default is to have a child because that's what they do, and then the child becomes the focus of their life, and raising that child becomes the thing that brings them these, those big sp spikes in happiness. But let's say you don't have children. What is it that brings happiness? And I discovered in making that film that happiness is tied to being creative, expressing yourself creatively in some way daily, whether it's I know, writing a poem or a short story or making a documentary like I do or an architect designing a house or a business person making a business plan or even just planting a garden and bringing forth life. You're creating life, and then children is the, you know, the outgrowth of that. But what I find great happiness in, I discovered one day, was when I took my first international trip. I went to Guatemala with my girlfriend over Christmas. I was just Googling and thought, let's do something different for Christmas this year. And it just randomly, Guatemala came up. So I said, let's just go there. I know nothing about it, really, except what I'm reading here. We went, and from day one, it changed my life because the food was so good, the colors and the smells and the people were so interesting that I just thought, I want to do this every day from now on. Yeah. And since then, I've been traveling every chance I get because it opened my eyes to an experience that gives me great happiness and enjoyment because I am exploring, I'm learning, I'm, I'm experiencing new things. And I, that's what I realize I need to feel more fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same. I, for years, travel was all I needed to be happy. As long as I was moving and seeing new places and learning new things, I, that was all I needed. Um, I eventually love your I came anthropology idea. I, I so want to do that. It's just get a van and travel for a couple of years. That's so fun. Dude, it's, it's awesome. I, I mean, at this point, the way my life has been configured, what I what I sort of wanted to be doing was summers in the van, right, in the North Rockies, Canadian Rockies, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming. It's just awesome up there, you know. And then winters in somewhere tropical, Guatemala, Indonesia, Thailand, you know, whatever. Um, but, of course, now with COVID, that's all kind of this year is kind of uh, not happening. So I'm in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it's about six degrees outside. About nine inches of snow fell last night. Everything is just puffy and white and beautiful. The sun's out. It's, you know, it's a different experience. It's awesome, though. Um, but, yeah, getting that movement is is just so nice. And also, it allows you... I think to, you know, getting back to Rat Park, it, travel 
sort of forces you to bring your life back to a level of simplicity and, you know, what's essential? Because how much do I really want to pack? Because I'm going to have to carry this thing, right? How much do I need to have with me to be comfortable? Turns out not a lot, right? You can buy what you need when you're in Guatemala or Indonesia. Um, and I, I think that's, to me, it sort of replicates a hunter-gatherer approach to existence, right? Like, I don't need to make a nest. I can find what I need wherever I go. And that's a very liberating feeling, you know, to just be light on your feet that way. And in the van, it's awesome because it's like backpacking, but for an older dude, you know, it's like, you know, when I was backpacking, it's like, I got my tent, I got some food, I got my sleeping bag, like I got everything I need. And now it's, I got a full memory foam bed. I got a cooler with beer and, you know, I got like, I really have what I need. Um, yeah, it's good. I recommend it. If if you decide you want to go for it, I'd be happy to uh, to to consult with you on that. I will it's call awesome. on you for that. Yeah, I will do that. Yeah, actually, I have a friend uh, who's got exactly the same van I do, and he's visiting me right now. Uh, it's a 2004 Dodge Sprinter, totally tricked out. He's a carpenter, so his is actually much nicer inside than mine is. He's built all the cabinets and everything. Um, and yesterday we were we were talking and he said, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of selling my van and and uh, outfitting a school bus. So he's thinking of like upgrade to a school bus <laughs> like the uh, Partridge family on the road. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if he's old enough to remember the Partridge family. That was how old are you? I think you're younger than me. Aren't 58. You? Oh, OK. I just turned 59 two days ago. So we're, we're the same age. Um yeah, the Partridge Family was one of the like my favorite show. I David Cassidy, like I got up on a table at a pizza restaurant when I was about eight years old and sang "I Think I Love You." That was <laughs> that was the beginning and end of my singing career. <laughs> if only you yeah. had that on tape, then you could play it. Oh, my mother reminds me every time I see her, but it's not on tape. Thank God. Um, so how many documentaries have you done, man? Uh, well, first was Trekkies, and then I did a sequel, Trekkies 2. In between those two, I did Six Days in Roswell, where I studied aliens, and are they coming here or not. Then I started to need to, had this feeling that I need to exercise the demon. I was wrestling with existentialism, so I made The Nature of Existence. And when I finished that, I felt like I needed a topic even more inexplicable than existence itself and that led me to marriage and so five documentaries so far and interspersed with that i make uh narrative films as well right yeah i just watched uh, uh, uh what suckers is that what it's called mike yeah it's about car salesmen and yeah I, that's it's it's almost documentary-esque in that it's based on my co-writer's experience selling cars and we tried to make it so that any salesman watching would would be able to go oh yeah that's right that's true yeah, I thought it was a documentary when I fired it up and started watching it. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> this, this, I recognize this actor. That can't be a documentary. Uh, the, the the bald guy who's like the Daniel boss. Daniel Benzali. Yeah, Daniel Benzali and Louis Mandalore and Lori Laughlin are the three stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a really interesting movie. When was that made? 
We filmed it in 97-ish, 98, and it was released on HBO. As It was acquired by HBO and released in 2001, and then uh, on to IFC, and now I just uh, restored it. That's the version you saw is my newly restored version. I got the original negative and rescanned it, remixed it, and then put it out on Amazon and Vimeo. Hmm. It's... Uh... Well, the first thing I noticed is uh, the very first scene um, is our mutual friend, Jake Johansson. I try to put Jake <laughs> in everything I do, pretty much. <laughs> He's usually very resistant and reluctant, but I, I cajole him and persuade him, and he ends up <laughs> making an appearance. Well, good. He, he should. He's he's awesome. Jake Jake's uh, Jake's an awesome guy. I, I and, and I am forever in your debt for having introduced me to him. He's uh he's a real sweetheart. Uh, he and Belinda are both wonderful people. Um I I had a I had a weird experience. I was at have at dinner at his place and he had friends over and uh oh, I forget the name of the comedian that we were chatting with. Um, he's an older guy. He He's an actor, a serious guy. He was in Mad Men. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I forget his name. Uh, he kind of, in Mad Men, he plays like kind of a smug, slightly evil guy. Um, he was also in that, that series where like the Nazis win. If, it, if the Nazis had won, what would America be like? Oh. Uh, anyway, anyway, he's like a very well-established comic um, and and serious actor. And we were talking about comedy and, you know, the, the sort of how comedians are different from normal people and all this kind of stuff. And and I said, have you guys seen that movie? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's about this joke that's so horrible that only comedians will tell it to each other. Right, yeah, you know I've seen about? that. Yeah, uh, produced by Penn, I think Penn Gillette. The 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 aristocrats. Right, <laughs> the aristocrats. And so we talk about the aristocrats and and what a great movie it is and blah blah blah. And then I got home and I was like, you know, I haven't seen that movie in probably ten years, so I want to watch it again. I fire it up on my computer. I'm sitting back watching it. There's Jake in the movie. There's this other guy in the movie. They're in the movie. But when we talk about the movie, they don't even mention that they're in the movie. And I'm like, that is the most L.A. thing ever, that you're so cool that you're talking about a film you're in and you don't mention the fact that you're in it. I, I mean, I can't imagine being that cool. They may also have completely forgotten because they've done so <laughs> many comedy shows that they become a blur. And even performing in a film is like a comedy show. You think so? It's just like, was it recorded or not? I don't remember. That could be. I hadn't considered that possibility. So, in so let's let's talk about uh, suckers because people can can go and watch it if if they want. It's on Amazon Prime. You said. Yeah, yeah. It'll save anybody who watches it thousands of dollars because you will learn exactly what all the salesmen do, and what 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 happened. Which we didn't expect this at all. We thought we'd be making kind of this expose about here's what really goes on, and this is what this is what they teach the salesmen and women at car dealerships, and the psychology that they use that has been formulated for thousands of years from the original uh, rug bazaars in Persia. Now salesmen have it perfected in when they're selling cars. But what happened is the film came out. 
had its little run initially, and then it achieved this cult following among car salesmen. Afterward, you can't find a car salesman who hasn't seen this movie, or I was once filming a commercial, I was directing a Kia commercial, and we went to the lot to look at the car in advance of filming it to get a sense of how we're going to shoot it and light it, and I told one of the, the director of photography, just as a joke, ask this guy who's ever seen the movie Suckers, see what he does. And he goes, hey, have you ever seen the movie Suckers? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, they make us all watch it in that room right over there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a training video now? That's what it's become, yes. Oh, man. that That's that's like a genre of phenomena where you, you create something as a critique and it ends up being taken as a celebration. It's kind of it's like, like and, and they wanted me to sign autographs and take pictures with them, these car salesmen. It was sort of like... Gangsters, I think, meeting Francis Ford Coppola, who made The Godfather. Right. Which Godfather doesn't make them look that good. It makes them look like bloodthirsty murderers. Right. But it puts them on the screen. So there's yeah. something inherently, unavoidably celebratory about that. Yeah. It's like the other day I, I learned a weird uh, fact, which is that the treadmill was invented as a torture device. That it was invented, you would have prisoners on a treadmill for 10 or 12 hours a day. You can't stop walking until you tell us, you know, what we want to know. And now we, you know, pay money to have them in our homes and torture ourselves with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know, I was struck by a few things. First of all, it's a very well-made film. The dialogue is, is fantastic. Uh, very Tarantino-esque in some ways. Uh, that was part of that late you know, 90s ethos. Yeah, people were making gritty films like that. You, I couldn't you, make that film today. There's no way I could, that film could be say. made anymore. Yeah, it, it, I was going to say there were some correct. scenes. Oh, my God. Like, not even borderline. There were some no. scenes where it was like, wow, I can't believe that Roger wrote those lines approve those lines and that he could get actors to read those lines. I mean, we just jotted yeah. down the lines from what car salesman actually said and tried to present it. Yeah. We, we went but to I mean, some of the racial stuff there. You, you deal that's with what some they racial do. stuff. That's what they say. And that's how they were. But yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't present that anymore like that. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's a powerful film. I, I, I mean, I one of the lessons it underneath it all that we learned was it's based on a particular dealership in the South Bay in Los Angeles, which is one of the most high-grossing areas for car dealers, because the people that live around there will come in and pay whatever. They don't—they're rich people, so the salesmen can make a lot of money. They're motivated to grind their customers, as they say. And what happens is anybody can make as much as a doctor their first year out as a car salesman if they just do what the general sales manager tells them to do. And so they have people from, uh, you've got every, every type of person and background, black, brown, white, Asian, Persian, Middle Eastern, er, J Jewish, all working together with a common goal of making as much money as possible. So all these people that initially are sort of primed to hate each other because of their differences are forced to work together and then get to know each other and then bond as this as brothers like this brotherhood it brings them together and so they have these they're able to insult each other with these sort of things that if you said them now you'd be canceled but that is their natural way of communicating with each other we, that's what we observed when we went and hung out at this dealership and when my partner worked there 
for as a salesman for two years. He just kept notes. And so what they're taught is essentially verbatim of what the sales manager was teaching them and the things they said. And they're all betting with each other and insulting each other. But they're all a team and they're working together with a common goal. That's kind of like the, the, the history of America in a microcosm. The right? dirty People dozen. From, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It's very much like a war movie, right? All thrown in together and under some sort of stress and strain. But also like with the American thing, like people coming from all over the world to make money, you know, like the American dream. Get Maybe over more there. Like Kelly's heroes where they're going to get that German gold in the in the bank behind enemy lines. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then you, you, another thing you do is you're a, an editor. So you, you so you direct, you write, you, you're a photographer, obviously, cinematographer. I don't know what the correct terminology is. And you're uh, an editor on – is it cool to talk about what you're doing yeah, currently? Or is yeah, that yeah. – okay. So you've been doing Curb Your Enthusiasm for, for how long? This will be my sixth season. I mean, six season. Yeah, um, I have worked on Curb since season five. Whenever I was available, there was a season I was unavailable because I was working on Veep in between. And uh, but I go back at any chance I get because it's. I mean, imagine sitting in a room with Larry David. It's there's nothing more enjoyable than cutting that footage together and working with him and being an editor on a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm puts you into the creative process like no other show because I get to build the show, build the scenes the way I think they're funny. They're relying on me to build. So you're watching what I think is funny. If you're watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, you're watching the show I mm. think based on the you know raw materials that they get, they give me through their improvisation and writing the outlines yeah. for the show. Right, because... It's unique in the sense that the lines aren't written, right? They These actors go into the room with a general sense of the trajectory of the scene. Like, we're going to argue about, uh, you know, who if your tip has to be the same amount as my tip or whether that's an intrusion on your privacy. So that's that's the scene. But then all the dialogue, they just come up with it on the spot, right? Yeah. Interestingly, what I found is that they spent, Larry David will spend six months, maybe more, eight months writing the outlines for the show. And it takes a long time because he's writing story. You can't improvise story. Hmm. Dialogue is easy to improvise if you have a good conflict within the scene, if the actors have something to push against and argue over, or if they have common goals that, that are opposed with each other, then if you put funny people together, they're going to come up with funny dialogue on top of the well-plotted storyline. And so what we end up doing usually is you can't really cut plots, so you cut jokes. And there's a lot of jokes that get cut down to the best ones in order to maintain the through line of the story, which is not dissimilar from the way I cut my documentaries. And when I, I think that's why I got the job partially is because I made Trekkies and they were aware of that when they hired me to work on Curb the first time and that I had uh, more than just an editor's perspective I had a storyteller's perspective as an editor mm. and I so did the same thing knew, Sorry. They knew that they knew that your role was going to be much more than a typical editor's role would be in a TV show when they interviewed me to be an editor on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I was the 25th editor they had interviewed. 
And that means 24 editors didn't make the cut or or said no thank you i can't it's too challenging for me it's too much footage there's not a, i need a script or larry didn't vibe with them and so they're very selective about the type of person who had the ability to tell a story in a way that larry david finds funny i've got to make as long as i keep him laughing with the choices i make in the editing room then i've got a job man that's a fascinating position to be in you know i i um there's a guy named daniel lenoir who i have referenced pretty often on this podcast in the sense that i think he has one of the coolest jobs in the world he's a a musical producer he's a musician himself um but he produced um the joshua tree u2 album uh so by peter gabriel he's produced um neil young and bob dylan you know just like huge heavy hitters and i've always thought like this dude has the coolest job in the world because his job is to go into the studio with you two amazing incredibly successful band and say okay guys here's how i think it could be a little better right let's add you know edge can you like do a little do this in c major and bring it in here and then i think we tone that down and we bring this up and the band says damn yeah you're right man that's great that's better to be able to do that is it's just such a powerful beautiful multi-faceted thing because you're dealing with ego you're dealing with someone who's very very good at what they do and to be able to bring something and have them agree like oh yeah it's a little better this way what a, it must give you such to make Larry David laugh. I guess what I'm saying is, holy fuck, I made Larry David laugh again. Like that is the top of the mountain. Very enjoyable. Yeah, it's very enjoyable to spend that time with Larry. Yeah, I, he, he doesn't laugh easily, I'll bet. I mean, come on. It's like it's like cooking for a great chef, you know, or, it's a very high or, level or, of uh, approach. Yeah, you've got to be successful yeah. to, to, to make that happen. And <clears throat> I realized last year when I was working on Curb, I thought I have been exposed to some of the most amazing, funny people by working on these TV shows like Larry David and Judd Apatow, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Dave Mandel, Jeff Schaefer, uh, all all these great showrunners. And I thought I I should write this down. And so I started writing a book about it. And now I've written a book. My second book is going to be about editing comedy and working with these comedy greats and what is comedy and how to be funnier. And I was able to sit down and interview each one of them and ask them for their wisdom about how do you be funny? How do you know it's funny? And particularly with editing, because my contention is that the three most important people on a movie or TV show are first the writer, because without the script, you've got nothing. There's nothing. That's where everything flows. And so they're very underappreciated, in my opinion. Second is the director, obviously, or the showrunner on TV shows, because they make all the creative choices in every department. And third, most important, is the editor. Also often overlooked. It's like, get who's ever available. But you wouldn't say get who's ever available to about writers. And because editors are rewriters. We're rewriting the script. And we have to fix things that they were were written badly and find solutions to, or maybe it was acted badly, written badly, constructed, shot badly. we got to make it work. Find a way and revise and reorient scenes on a macro level we're moving scenes around on a micro level within scenes we're restructuring putting lines here and moving them there and 
So it takes, that's why it takes someone who has a storytelling ability, not just someone who can manipulate a keyboard. Right. Right. And, and you're further limited because the, the writer and the showrunner are both working with a canvas that hasn't been fully painted yet. Right. They can they can say, OK, we got to redo that scene and they can say, OK, you know, take five. We're going to redo the scene in a different way. We've rewritten this. We, we're eliminating that. You need to work with a canvas that's already been painted and the paint's dry. Right. I mean, it's sort of like can't... one of the showrunners, uh, Alec Berg, who created Barry and Silicon Valley. He said that writing the script is sort of like making your list of ingredients. This is what I'll need to make this meal. Shooting the film or the episode is like going to the store and buying all the ingredients. Well, we're running out of time. Or this one's on sale. This one is unavailable. What can we get instead? And then the editor is like the chef. Now you present the ingredients you bought with your recipe, mm. and the chef puts it together and might go, you know what? I tried it without the meat. See if you like it. Or I tried it with extra sauce. Or you didn't have this ingredient. And so a lot of times... The filmmakers or the writer, the producer sort of wants you to create what they wrote, but that was a hope. The reality is the footage, and the footage is what tells you what to do. I often don't even want to read the script. I just want to look at the footage and then create the scene or the episode out of what's there, not what they wished it was, because that's irrelevant now. All that matters right. is the footage, and that tells me what I should do. Right. So when you're when you're editing um, Curb, for example, how many takes are you looking at of the same, you know, scene in the restaurant? Like seven to 10, 12 at the most, usually, because they shoot with this fire hose of coverage with three or four cameras. Now, right. the old days, single camera film meant they shot with one camera. But now because the cost of cameras has come down and the weight, and the size they can shoot with more cameras. Particularly with an improvised show, it's better to have cameras on everybody because if they say a line and they're not covered, it's lost forever. Right. Whereas with the feature film, cinema has a different look and feel to it because they really do focus on one direction at a time. And then they light that direction, that person, for to look the absolute best that they can because they only have to look in this one direction. With with television, because you've got multiple cameras, they've got to do this more flat general lighting that covers every direction, and so it doesn't look as pretty. And that's when you get a sense of, oh, this is TV versus this is film. One, It's another mm. way you get one sense you get. Right. So is it hard for you? Like, I'm trying to imagine being in your position. So you're sitting in a room... Your first, your first vision, your first view of this. You're not on set when they're shooting, right? You come in most later. of the time. No. Okay, so you're watching this footage. It's got different camera angles. You've got seven takes of a scene, and then it moves to the next scene, and seven takes of that. So it probably, if it's a two minute scene, you're watching over an hour's worth of footage yes. of that scene. Yeah. So. So you're watching, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten hours of footage that really will only cover 10 or 15 minutes ultimately in the show. How do you how do you maintain the narrative thread of where they're going? It takes forever. I mean, this is like 
time, the opposite of time-lapse photography. I don't know what that <laughs> is. Slow motion. It's like you're like seeing them saying the same things over and over. Is there a way for you to maintain a sense of freshness or do you just plow through it and then look back on it later? That's one reason I started to write a book about it because I did develop a system that is apparently very different. My assistants have told me they've never seen anyone do what, or very few people do it the way I do it. And I approach things from the back. I start at the end. I look at the last take because that's probably where they ended up feeling like they got it. We've arrived. The scene now works. And I will cut together a version of the scene based on that one take with the three camera angles and have a working version of the scene. And now then I'll go backwards through the footage and try to beat what I have with better Ah, nuggets. And I'll find better versions or funnier jokes. If I started at the beginning and worked forward, I'd be replacing 95% of it. But if I start at the end, I'm only replacing maybe 40 to 60%. So I can move much faster, and I have a sense of where the scene went and what they wanted. Sometimes the first take is the best for many things, but most of the time they arrive somewhere and feel good and move on, and that's the version that you use. Do you... Then what you're doing, sometimes you might have... You know, Jeff says says a line in a certain way that's got a freshness and energy to it that in the last take isn't quite as good because you've got all these different camera angles. You can pull that Jeff's performance from that first take and stick it into your final take, right? Sometimes you you need freshness. Yeah, sometimes freshness is better, but most of the time they've arrived at a better phraseology of the take or a better writing of the line by the ending of the scene They've reworked it and come up with a better, shorter. It's a lot. It's really about editing is about whether it's words or images or TV shows. It's about how do I say the same thing in the fewest number of bits? How do you be concise, right? Good writing is concise writing. So my first passes are generally I'm really not even looking at the picture. I'm really only listening to the soundtrack because that's Ooh. where most of the performance is in what they say and how they say it. And so right. it's almost like I'm cutting a radio play at first and make I've got the best versions. Then at some point I'll go visual. I'll look at, okay, now I feel like I've got the best performances. Now I've got to make sure it flows elegantly and I'm not jumping over the line or it's out of focus or I missed something, or I need a reaction shot, I'll start thinking visually. And then I might replace lines because even though I liked the audio take here, it's it's going to be better with a wider version. And often I'll, I'll, it's called line stuffing. I'll take the line delivered in this take and put it in the mouth of this other take because it's a better visual but a better performance. And I'll rebuild people's performances from the syllables on up. I'll replace syllables. Really? And words. So he- so you so when we're watching the show, we can see a character, an, an actor say a line, but that audio may be from a different take, or f- so five it's different almost like takes. it's like they're dubbing themselves. It's called they're called Franken bites, where you're just putting you're you're, you're <laughs> stitching things together to get the absolute yeah. best possible performance in every way. And there, wow. I, there, I have so many. There's so many tricks that you know. It's getting your ten thousand hours in. Or whatever, just enough experience, you you pick up a lot of tricks. And I learned my tricks through two years of editing, writing, and producing television promos for TNT Latin America, which forces you, if you're cutting a 30-second or a 15-second spot, every frame is crucial. If it if it's extraneous, it goes in order to fit into that that framework. So now I bring that same uh, approach to cutting comedy. 
And Billy Wilder always said, faster is funnier. Mm. You make yeah. it go as fast as possible so right. that when you do stop, the pauses are intentional. It's, they stop and pause because I want them to. Not, it's not what they did on the set. Usually the pacing that the writer thought was appropriate and the director and the actors thought was appropriate is all too slow once mm. you get it into the context of the show. So I speed right. everything up, pull out all the pauses, the ums, the ahs, the you knows, the look, the listen. that People th- look, you know, they'll say that at the beginning. It's like an announcement. I'm about to speak. I get rid of all that stuff and get it down to the most concise version so that the, the line between the setup and the punchline is as, a, as direct and close as possible, and then the punchline lands more strongly. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Pacing. Have you... Uh... Have you ever, like, changed the trajectory of a scene in a way that you were worried Larry might not like? You know what I mean? Have you made creative decisions where you were afraid he would be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, that's not what this scene is about. Do you get into that type of conversation? Well, that is a concern. And the reason I get asked back is because my instincts bring fourth versions of the episodes that are in sync with what he likes and so i i find the same twisted things funny that he thinks are funny basically <laughs> no is that have you adapted your sense of humor to his over the years or do you think you were just sort of there's there's a natural resonance between the two of you well there's a little bit of both i mean there's there's a natural uh resonance in terms of what is funny and what's not funny it's almost mathematical and if right. you're both Good, good comedy mathematicians you're going to arrive at the same quotient so yeah. that's what what we do but there's of course some personal choice i like this punchline better than that punchline but we'll have discussions what do you think is funnier this or that and i'll and i'll make my case and larry uh, and sometimes jeff schaefer who's the other showrunner on curb your enthusiasm will debate lines and ultimately it's Larry. It's his decision. It's his show. And we go with what he wants. And so we have to absorb what it is that's that that's Larry David style funny and recreate it. But it's really mathematical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I think Veep has a very similar um, take on humor. Right. The, the pacing similar. It's that fast paced, dark like, oh, I can't believe they said that. That's really funny and really disturbing at the same time. You know, there's like a, I don't know, a charming brutality to it, uh, you know, to both of them. Like, I, I can't believe, you know, Larry, like some of the the places that, that they, both those shows go, uh, just feel so, the ice feels so thin that you kind of admire the courage at the same time, you're laughing. It's it's interesting that you're on both those shows. Well, part of what's uh, funny are, are, is stating the truth. Yeah, truth yeah, is funny. Exactly. Sometimes just saying a true statement is funny because we spend so much energy avoiding the truth individually and societally. So when yeah. someone points it out, the emperor is wearing no clothes, it's hilarious. And then that has... Uh, that has social change. The best place to change society is not passing laws. It's through humor. Right. Yeah. You ridicule 
people in positions of power is the best way to diminish them, right? And diminish their power. So are, do, you t- do you talk about that kind of stuff in the book? Do you get into the oh, philosophy yeah. of comedy the philosophy, as well as the mechanics? The mathematics of it. What is funny? What isn't funny? Surprise. That's the number one thing. Why something's funny. Yeah. Because you were surprised. You didn't see it coming. When I asked right. about Apatow and Larry, they all said surprise. That <laughs> top of their mind. But there are other right. things. Incongruency is funny. Pain is funny. Yeah. Man fall down, nothing funnier than that. Because yeah. we're thinking, I'm glad that wasn't me. Boy, that must have hurt. You know? So do you, do you look, as someone who's spent a lot of his life traveling, do you look at comedy transculturally? Are there? Do you look at differences in, in, in universalities in in how different cultures approach comedy? Sure. I mean, it's it's the basics are the same in any culture. Every culture will find a joke funny if it's based on those basics. Someone hitting their head, the Three Stooges is funny in every culture. Hmm. But culturally based humor it does not translate because it's you have to know the culture puns for instance there's an obvious one a pun in one language is not going to necessarily be funny in another language they're barely funny to begin with <laughs> but yeah. the main things when i was working with sasha baron cohen he tests all of his comedies in multiple countries and compares the results on charts and waveforms and compares the laughs he's like a scientist really? of comedy no kidding and what he's he's found that too that this the same joke basically works everywhere in the world if it's based on those formal the, the those uh fundamentals of comedy right you know as you were describing you know surprise and incongruency and these sort of basic elements of comedy that are universal i was thinking those are the things that make babies laugh they're right? natural, make, yeah. They're they're, they're natural. Yeah. That that shows how humor is natural to human beings. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Silly, You're just what, being silly, what, right? Uh, yeah, you laugh and like, like fool, you know, the antics of a fool. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's interesting, and and even chimpanzees laugh at that kind of stuff. And rats. There have been studies that it's part of social oh, interaction right. and social bonding. The laughter is it's it's a part of mammals. It's who it's who it's what apparently helps us survive in some way it became adaptive yeah that's interesting uh so do you have a title for this book and a release date or where yeah, are you in coming out in november it's called cut to the monkey <laughs> that's a good title good to the that's good even the title exemplifies that surprise cut to the i would not have thought monkey you yeah. know that's the metaphor for when you're an editor you want something to cut to a cutaway that if you're in a jam you need to cut away to something so you can bridge a gap you can always cut to a monkey because no matter what they're doing, it's always interesting. <laughs> and, and unexpected, no matter how many times you do it. What were you doing with Sasha Baron Cohen? I worked on uh, a show called Who is America? Oh, yeah. And then yeah. I also worked on this, the most recent Borat movie. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating dude. As far as the the philosophy of comedy, you know, obviously a very very thoughtful guy, uh, and and he was yeah, very the, influenced I, by Inspector Clouseau, for example. Oh yeah, Peter I Peter Sellers was one of his heroes, along with Phil right. Silvers and Sergeant Bilko, and mm. he's a lot like Peter Sellers in that he will totally inhabit a character st- until it becomes so believable. 
and yeah. particularly when he's he's improving with real people who don't know that he's playing a character, they think it's a real person. He yeah. will go to the extent of having a complete backstory for this person, what they did two months ago, one week ago, yesterday, so that when they ask a question, he can answer instantaneously without having to think about it and maintain the yeah. the, the real, uh, genuine quality of his character. Well, didn't he, like, I don't know if I saw an interview with him or or where I, how I know this, but in the most recent film, he ended up, like, staying in the house with people for a night or two. And he had to talk to his wife or his kid or something. So he's in the bedroom with the door locked, talking on the cell phone, like as himself. And they knock on, hey, hey are you all right? And he had to like come out in character, like, oh, I'll call you back. And like had to like, you know, he slept in character, essentially. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's astounding for me to watch the dailies of the footage. The way that he gets people to do things that seem so absurd. One of the sequences I edited on Who is America was with this Georgia congressman, Republican congressman, who ended with him chasing Sasha around with his pants down and his ass out, (laughs) screaming, USA, USA. I remember that. This guy, for some reason, thought it was okay, acceptable, and normal in that scenario to be doing that. And he doesn't get to that right away. What Sasha does is he spends an hour or more with that person presenting himself as an authority figure, teaching a self-defense class. So they see him as authority, instructor, giving orders, and he just keeps moving the line a little further, a little further. He doesn't force anybody to do anything. He just makes requests, and then they comply or not. Sometimes they figure out what's going on and they get mad, and then you know, then the sketch is over or, or it doesn't work or he doesn't make the cut. But that's, that's an example of one that, that made it to the end. <laughs> And that technique is not unlike a car salesman. Oh, my goodness. Or just negotiating with your boyfriend or girlfriend for what movie to watch. We all Mm. want every relationship is a power struggle of some kind that never ends. There's a constant jockeying and then finding a new equilibrium. You get caught cheating. Uh Uh-oh, big argument. New equilibrium is formed. Someone else is in charge, you know, has more power than the other now. Then you got to adjust to a new situation or parent with child. You know, I want to stay up past 8 o'clock. No, you can't. How about 8.15? Okay, fine. You just negotiated with your child and taught them it's okay to negotiate with you and that you'll back down. And is that a good thing or bad thing? Whatever. That's what happens. Or parents and children, spouses, friends. What are we, where are we gonna? What bar are we gonna go to? Whatever it is, there's a constant negotiation where we're trying to manipulate the best outcome for ourselves. Do you think having spent so much time with, um, you know, people who are professionally funny, not just people who are funny, but people who make a living uh, at understanding and, and creating humor. Do you think funny people laugh more than normal people? Yes and no. It's one of those answers. Yes, they, their whole life is about laughter. Finding as much as and creating as much as possible. So the level quantity is huge, but they don't laugh as much the way that a, a civilian might. I find myself doing it sometimes going, instead of like guffawing, I'll go, that's funny. Oh, right. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Pretty funny. So there's there's almost a disconnection from the the sort of natural bodily response. 
right? It's, it's intellectualized. It's like, I see that. It's like, it's like if I were hiking and I saw a bear rather than screaming and running, I might just go, oh, there's a bear. Because I've spent so much time in the woods that I know not to, you know, I, I've disconnected that immediate response. Reaction. Use the right word. See, when, you, when you're intellectualizing something, you don't laugh. You, you have to shut down the intellectualizing part and let the part of the brain that is about laughter be in charge. And we spend a lot of time crafting an episode so that the audience is not ahead of us, because if they're ahead of us, they're predicting what's happening and they're, they're bored. There's if, no surprise. If they're too far behind, now they're intellectualizing and trying to put all the pieces together and having to think about why is this happening. And you don't laugh when you're trying to think and put pieces together. We want them just behind us, not having to think, but not predicting what's going to happen. And so there's where the mathematics comes in with pacing and trying to gauge how much of a setup, how much information to lay down and how much is too much and where to leave it so that you're getting the maximum laughter from people. I laugh the most when I'm watching a movie that I don't have to think about from an intellectual aspect, so I can just absorb it and be surprised. Then I'll guffaw like everybody else. But when I'm working, I'm thinking, and, and so I don't laugh, I, but I recognize where the humor is, and that's where I'm going, oh, yeah, that's going to be funny. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, it, I think it's similar to music in the sense that you know, I've spoken to musicians who who said when I'm performing or or even often when I'm I'm listening to music, I'm so attuned to the mechanics of what the musician is doing that I feel um, like I'm cut off from an emotional experience in a way. You know, I, I remember I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a musician one time, and I was like, "Do you feel the you know you see the you feel the nostalgia in this part of the song?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, that's because it's in an A minor key, you know, and that evokes nostalgia." And he, and he sort of explained it to me in a way that was very illuminating, but it was also like, like, oh man, I I kind of. I like it better not knowing, you know, I, I like it better not knowing the ingredients that went into this dish because I can just bathe in the, in the sensation of the flavor without thinking like, oh, that's cardamom. I see. I don't know. There's a way in which it enriches experience and a way in which it also blocks experience in some sense. Um, but the, the other the other angle to that question about whether you know, funny, professionally funny people laugh more is this sense that uh, there's a lot of pain behind comedy. You know, there, there seems to be suffering. Did you find when you were doing interviews and research and your own personal experience, do you find that, that these people who are at the, you know, pinnacle of the world of humor often are coming from a place of trauma or that there's some sort of trauma that motivates um, their need to find laughter, relief, or release? Very often, yes, very often. Many comedians come from a very difficult childhood. One of the showrunners I worked with, her name is Krista Vernoff, who is the showrunner of Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 and other things. Um, she was on Shameless. I went to work on Grey's Anatomy because they were going back to their comedic roots, so they wanted to bring an editor who knew comedy, so I worked for a season. And she 
is very good at bringing the humor back in and doing what she calls the comedy couple, which she got from Commedia dell'arte, where you'd have the main couples are dealing with disaster and loss and sorrow. So you, then you have a secondary couple that's dealing with silliness and awkwardness to offset this really mm. dr dramatic, heavy stuff. You'd see that going on a lot in Grey's Anatomy. And Krista is very funny and writes funny stuff, but she comes from a very difficult background of, of social, physical, and verbal abuse. Physical abuse when she was a child. She was raised by alcoholic, drug addicts. And went to college and studied acting, and then she took a writing class, and that's when the light went off and she realized that this is for me. And she said it took her many years before she could even give herself permission to be a writer, mm. to sort of overcome her background. But that gave her gives her catharsis, writing about these things and being able to express your thoughts and your feelings and what happened to you. Mostly, when you see a movie, it's probably some kind of fight Every one of your favorite movies, somebody's fighting somebody else, or they're fighting the environment or society, or it's a conflict of some kind. And romantic comedy is teaching people how to deal with social conflict. And action movies are physical conflict. And these are ways that you're watching people deal with conflict in their lives, and we're experiencing an emotion in our lives that we probably feel a deficit of. I go back to movies because I want a, a, a burst of either laughter, tears, or anger, or ideally all three. When you get all three at once, that's you, you got a, a, a grand slam. And that's why that the the cliche of the critics' review is: I laughed, I cried. <laughs> you want it <laughs> right. all, but at least one. You want, it all. You want at least yeah. one. But even in a yeah. comedy, you want some emotion. You want to care about whether the protagonist is going to be all right at the end. Even in a movie like Airplane, which is just nonstop nonsense, you still care <laughs> whether they're going to be all right when they are right. going to survive. It would be even funnier if the plane crashed at the end. <laughs> they're all dead. <laughs> There's yeah, a movie that just came yeah. out this year, I don't know if you've seen it yet, called Promising Young Woman. Have you seen it? Uh -uh. It's very comedic, yet it's also very violent. And um, with a very tragic ending. And I love the movie because the ending is so tragic, which is huh. rare and daring and challenging for a comedy. But it's brilliant. Promising mm, Young Woman. It's, it's one of my favorites of the year. Have you ever worked with Jim Carrey? Yes. He's in my first movie called High Strung. He has an unbilled cameo. I used to work for his managers, a company called Rollins, Joffe, Moore, and Bresner. I, that was my first job in Hollywood as the messenger. So I used to give Jim rides to places and hang out, go watch him perform at the comedy clubs. And I was invited That's to his it. first wedding. And, and uh, he uh, uh, is also from a background that was a very yeah. difficult background where they were essentially homeless for a long time. And humor for him was a way to escape and look in the mirror and make these strange faces. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I mention him. He's, he's, I think the, maybe the, the most poignant embodiment of that sort of suffering on one hand and, and, you know, absolute comic genius on the other. And he's also, he's an interesting character to me, you know, I, I, on this podcast, I, I am not attracted to having famous people on as guests. Uh, I know it would, you know, 
be a good move strategically and increase my audience and blah, blah, blah. But generally, in my experience, famous people are not really interesting to chat with because they've heard every question so many times and their answers are, you know, so practiced and they're very careful and they've got to protect themselves and blah, 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 all that stuff. The careful part. That's the thing. It's the careful part. I find that with when I'm interviewing people for documentaries, when they're very protective about I don't want to look bad, there's nothing there. But if they're open, you want someone who is open, who's going to bear their soul. That's the yeah. perfect interviewee. Sure. And, and, and I mean, I'm sure we both understand why they have to be protected because they've been screwed. And if you get some famous person to say something they shouldn't say, that will bring attention to your medium, your platform, whatever. And that's a coup. Um, you know, I would, I don't do that. I, I, if I have anyone on, including you, I should say, who says, Hey, you know what, that stuff where I mentioned, you know, my ex-wife or something, can we cut that? I always am happy to cut it out. But anyway, this is a long winded way of saying that Jim Carrey is one of the few really, really famous people that I would love to spend time with, because I think he has managed to actually be enriched by I mean, enriched on a psychological level by the experiences that he's had, by the fame that he's seen and by and he hasn't lost the capacity um, to I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm totally wrong about this. But my sense is that he's a real person, that he hasn't lost touch with his authentic, you know, mortal, fallible, ridiculous, uh, diminished humanity despite all the adulation and money and cameras and all that i I don't know if it's true but that's my sense there may be half a dozen people i i think who've managed to climb that mountain and not lose their shit i think you're right i think jim grapples with existentialism and deep questions and isn't just a guy who comes and reads the lines i mean to be a great comedian is different than being a great actor to be a great comedian, you've got to be intelligent and you've got to be able to look at the world and process it and give it back to people in a way that enlightens them and makes them laugh. And it's very difficult to do that successfully. Yeah. Are there other people who come to mind? I mean, you've been in L.A. a long time. You've you've hung out with a lot of very famous people. Are there other people who come to mind where you're like, yeah, here's an example of someone else who's been in the spotlight but hasn't been burned out by it (laughs) well they all stick around as long as possible and it's hard to burn them out they because once you've got a taste of it you don't really want to willingly give it up but you will be best served do Sure, right? Sure. Some, some people walk away. Greta Garbo walked away. I mean, I'm sure we could come up with a list of the exceptions people who walked the, away. The rule, I think, most people don't until they're forced to. But I think you're going to, you, the reason Jim Carrey is a good choice is you're on the right track. When you pick comedians to be on your show versus actors, actors often you meet them and they're kind of, there's not much going on there because their whole life is about becoming something that someone else creates for them whereas a comedian has to create on their own so if you had whitney cummings on your podcast or somebody who is funny and processes the world you like jake johansson obviously you'll never go wrong 
That's why I yeah. try to put Jake in my movies or anybody. I put comedians in my movies every chance I get. Like, uh, because I, they always bring something to the process. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they are, I mean, that's, I love hanging out with comedians and, and I, I, I remember the time I was hanging out with Duncan Trussell, who was on, he did, had a cameo on, uh, curb. I, I don't know if you did that season, a very brief cameo, but it's funny. Cause one night I was watching, I was like, wait, that's Duncan. Holy shit. Uh, I was with him and, and Joe Rogan and, and I realized that the reason I enjoyed hanging out with them so much was a, that absolutely no topic is off limits. There's zero, like whatever, no matter how offensive and outlandish and it's better actually, because that's probably a place other people haven't been mining yet, you know? And then there's this, this way that they just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and they find humor and then where they find the humor, then they go and squeeze more there. And it, it's this sort of voracious appetite for truth. Because as you said earlier, the truth is funny. So when you're seeking humor, you're also seeking truth. So there's something philosophically very profound about that kind of humor. That is the key. Truth. Hemingway said something similar. He said when, when he was blocked at writing, he would sit down and write the absolute lo, absolutely most true statement he could write and then mm. begin from there. And wow. comedy is the same thing. It's like writing about the elephant in the room, the skeletons in the closet. Tell the truth about these things. I have to often give students, uh, if when they're trying to write something, I'll give them the assignment Write a, create a character based on somebody you know, whether it's your mother, or your brother, or yourself. Usually, better to pick someone else that you've observed, you've lived with. And then, what is their basic flaw? Like, if you pick a mother, let's say it's your mother, and she is so controlling that she threatens to remove, to stop paying my uh, dorm rent in college if I don't do what she wants. That's her flaw. Okay, now... What's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to her in her life? Write, write about that. And just get, if it's maybe one paragraph even, if you can write that down, you've got the beginnings of a story right there. You've got a character with a flaw, with an extremely embarrassing, truthful re uh, recounting of an event. And then usually something will really will start flowing from that. Interesting. So is it, are you looking for the most embarrassing event because that is an example of a moment where she did not have control? Lack of control. There's conflict. There's probably humor. Embarrassing situations usually end in some funny way. It's like when you tell an anecdote to your friends about this embarrassing thing that happened to you. Right. There's right. usually a punchline automatically waiting for you. That's you just apply it to the story. And it's a puncturing of ego as well, which is in, innately funny. So when you say your students, That's are they editing yes. or writing? Uh, well, the, the book is about both, editing and writing. And that's what I do. And that's one of my things I'm trying to teach writers and editors is that they're the same thing. You can't be a great mm. editor if you don't understand writing and mm. story structure. And structure is conflict. Story is conflict. If there's no conflict in a scene, you don't have a scene yet. It, it's got to go. And so you've got to find the conflict. And it's, uh, it, again, it's, it's sort of mathematical, and it's analyzing structurally 
whether you're editing or writing, and it's the same thing. So I'm teaching writing and how crucial it is to write about things that you probably wouldn't even tell your shrink. That's what makes a great writer. That's what I want to read. I want to read that script. Not the thing that you, you're, some action picture that you think studios will buy because it's just like this other one. Who cares? Mm. Tell me a personal story that you've been hiding your whole life. That's going to make an interesting screenplay. Yeah. What do you think, when you think of great screenplays, do do any come to mind immediately as an example of fucking awesome you know the rembrandt of screenplays well they they're great usually because they've been made into a great movie and that's how you find out about it and mm. one of my favorite all times screenplays is by billy wilder for a film called one two three <clears throat> and it was james cagney's last movie for a long time he basically retired for 20 some years after that because it was so difficult for him the the pace is so fast it's a screwball comedy and billy wilder's plan was to 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 film it and deliver it as fast as humanly possible. And it's just stunning how funny this is. It's about a uh, the man who's the head of Coca-Cola, who's in, in Berlin after the World War II, when there's an East Berlin and West Berlin. The wall hasn't been built yet, and there's a lot of tension going on. And his daughter falls in love with an East Berlin girl, and so now he's got to deal with this uh, unwanted romance. And it's so funny. You can't stop laughing as it's dealing with real world issues yeah that's the ideal type of screenplay and those are the most memorable you know when i uh, alec berg told me uh, the creator of barry when he's writing a script what he's going for is four or five really strong laughs in a screenplay or a movie or a tv show he says laughs are logarithmic an a laugh isn't twice as funny as a B-plus laugh. It's ten times as funny. Oh, like an earthquake scale. If you can get five A-plus laughs, it's way better than having a hundred B-plus laughs. Those movies are kind of forgettable. You know, a bunch of little laughs. But if you've got five really big laughs, and that's what we go for in Curb Your Enthusiasm, is every episode to have a few really big belly laughs. And, you know, that also makes sense in 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 the sense that those a plus laughs are the ones that people tell their friends about and they're the ones that people remember years later you know uh tom cruise dancing at the end of tropic thunder like you know like my god talk about an amazing uh, did did you enjoy that film tropic thunder yeah right exactly that's that's what's memorable and and word of mouth is crucial to the success of media yeah yeah. I'll tell you, my I, I was just uh, watching a documentary the other day about the making of Chinatown. And I was reminded of what an incredible screenplay that is. A great movie, obviously, but the writing and the way the the way the the layers of understanding where you think at the beginning it's a detective, classic detective movie. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's this is more than I thought was going on. Now this rich lady is trying to manipulate him and da da da. And then wait a minute, there's somebody pretending to be him. Now it's not so it's this sort of like, oh, it's not what I thought it was. It's not what I thought it was. And it just keeps the circle keeps expanding. Uh and the payoff is incredible. And do you know do you know the I, I have a friend who um 
hung out with Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson and, and, you know, that whole crew when they were working on that movie. Um, and she pointed out that Jack Nicholson didn't know who his mother was. Did you know that whole story about him? He, he's an he, or, his like sister. A... Yeah, his sister was actually his mother, but he grew up thinking that was his older sister. Yeah. I mean, and, and how that sort of overlaps with Chinatown is a pretty incredible. And I asked her, was that, did Jack bring that to it? Or was that, and she didn't know if, if he had added that, you know, as a collaborator or something. Um, well, anyway, listen, cut to the monkey. I can't wait to read that. That sounds super exciting. So you make movies, you write books, you edit TV show, like super famous, popular TV shows. You know, what the fuck don't you do, dude? Like, d- d- tell me you don't salsa dance. You're a shitty dancer. Please. <laughs> yeah, I'm a terrible dancer. I don't travel enough. Good. And uh, I'm getting better as a, as a cook. <laughs> Good. Good. So what's, what's happening? What's in the future for you? Are you, you know, once the lockdown lifts, are you going to head back to Indonesia? Or, like, that's your favorite place, right? More travel. Yeah. My home away from home is Bali. I love to go to Bali, so very likely I'll be uh, living there writing the next book. I have an idea for another book on ho- making documentaries, which is another area of expertise, obviously, and mm. uh, that'll keep me busy for another year, probably. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime, and maybe we can just like pick one of your uh, areas of expertise and just focus. I feel like this has been kind of scattershot. And in a wonderful way, but you know, there's so many questions I'd love to ask you just about making documentaries. And I feel like we didn't really get into that much. Like, you know, let's talk about Errol Morris and Werner Herzog and, you know, the great documentarians of the world. And, uh, you know, I'd also love to talk to you. Are you interested in like, uh, Luis Bunuel and the whole sort of surrealism and, oh man. Oh, yeah. Bunuel yeah. movies uh, are, are, were a big influence on the Monty Python group, who were my biggest influence no kidding. growing up. I didn't know that. Wow. Monty that's Python is surrealistic connection. comedy. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's essentially, it's a cousin to what Bunuel was doing in Dali and uh, that uh, group of artists. You're right. It's, it's, there's a sort of serious silliness uh, bridging those, those two. I never thought of that, but. You know, the first time I saw a Bunuel movie, um, I was in college and I I was good friends with my uh, professor uh, and his friend had an apartment in Manhattan and his friend was going to be out of town. So we went down and stayed in this guy's apartment in Manhattan. It was my first real experience of Manhattan. I was probably 19 years old or so. And we're in the village and my friend was looking at the paper. He's like, what? let's go to a movie tonight. We're in Manhattan. We can see anything. There are, you know, 500 movies playing tonight. And he was looking through the listings and I was like, yeah, this is great. And he said, uh, oh, my God, there's a, a Bunuel double feature playing up uh, near, the, near uh, Columbia. It was uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Viridiana. And what do you think about that? And I was like, great. I'd never heard of Bunuel. Uh, I didn't know anything about surrealism. I was 19, right? So we we go up and first we, we got to have a beer at a bar called The West End. 
I think it was called, which is like where Jack Kerouac hung out and Allen Ginsberg and the whole beat kind of thing started there, I think. And we're in this bar and the movie's going to start in an hour or so. And my friend says, it's too bad we don't have any weed because it would be great to get high before we watch this movie. And I was like, yeah, well, I said, I don't, I've got some acid in my wallet. If, if you want and he was like, oh, my God, really? And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know. So we end up taking this LSD before we go to see the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Right now, I this guy's a Marxist literary professor. I th I'm thinking that this movie is a documentary about like, you know, pre-revolutionary France, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. What do I know? We go in there. By the time we get to the cinema, I'm tripping my face off. And we sit. I remember sitting down and this some, you know, someone came and sat in the seat next to me. And then I felt like a hand on a thigh. And I was like, okay, did I just put my hand on my thigh? Or did I put my hand on his thigh? Or did he put his hand on my thigh? Like I was that high, right? And then the movie starts. And I don't know if you remember how that movie starts, but it's like a cocktail party and the couple is waiting for everyone to come to the party and they decide they want to have sex. So they crawl out their bedroom window and they go fuck in the woods. There and were the then ants come are crawling all over everything. <laughs> their hands on everything. They're, they're like, they've got sticks in their hair and grass stuck and they're, it's this fancy party and everyone's ignoring the fact that they've obviously been fucking in the backyard. And then the, the like maid comes around with the, um, with the, uh, the canapes or whatever, and he comes in with a tight shot, and it's like raw meat with blood dripping all over the... And I was just like, what the hell is happening here? I thought I was losing my mind. And it wasn't until halfway into the movie I realized, no, the movie is actually crazy. It's not me. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> anyway, anyone out there listening to this, if you're going to go see a Bunuel film, do not do it while tripping. Or, or just be warned. Don't, you know, know what you're getting into. That could have, that could have been like too much. That could have snapped me. I remember the watching Monty Python when I was a kid and it was on PBS and kind of, which, you know, it kind of grainy and uh, hard to see, but I had never seen anything so funny in my life. And it was, I, there was one sketch called, uh, it was a parody of Sam Peckinpah. And it was starts with somebody coming going, tennis anyone? And somebody throws a tennis ball, it hits him in the eye, and blood starts spraying out of his eye. And somebody's <laughs> playing the piano, and the, the key, the it cover closes on his hands, and his hands are severed, and his bloody stumps are spraying blood all over the place. And it was so beyond anything I'd ever seen in my life. And it opened my eyes to also what could be done with comedy that no one else was doing on a, in American comedy. I'd never seen anything like it. And I found that with almost without exception, every one of the showrunners and com comedic people I interviewed for the book were all influenced by Monty Python. Mm. It was a formative influence, and it became it was between Monty Python and the Marx Brothers. And so I wondered, what is it about those two things? And what it is is that they both punch upward. They make fun of the king or the queen or the judge or the people, the very pretentious people in mm. power over us. And the Marx Brothers were the same. They were always 
like someone would would uh, do something to Harpo at the beginning, some stuffy person of uh, from the higher social class, and that gave them license for the rest of the film to torture the people of the upper class. And that's what we love to see. That's a very successful formula for comedy, is the skewering of the pretentious, controlling, ruling class. So comedy is inherently subversive and political. It can be, and some of the most successful formulas for comedy are. Hmm. Which is why people in power generally disdain comedy <laughs> right. and have no sense of humor. You see Washington continually attacking the media or people in Hollywood. There's those evil people in Hollywood because they make fun of, of the people in power. And I mean, Veep, the entire show, Veep, was dedicated to that. Yeah. That was a great show, man. I love that show. <laughs> that you should be very proud to have been associated with all these shows. I mean, my God, this is, you know, you've, it's great. Like you're, if you're a chef, you're cooking for the, you know, best parties around for I'm sure. Trying to get a couple of comedy Michelin stars. <laughs> Good job. All right, listen, I've taken up almost two hours of your time, Roger. I'm really glad we did this. And like, I, I would be happy to do it anytime you have some some free time. It's it's wonderful. Definitely. Let's do it when your book comes out for sure. Okay. Yeah, that'll be November. We could talk then. And then by then I'll be, I can uh, tell you what I am uh, cooking, cooking up for the next book and making the secrets behind making documentaries. And the title yeah. I'm working with there is uh, How to Make Documentaries and Get Paid a Million Bucks. Hmm. That's that. That's tough. I mean, from what I hear, most documentaries don't make any money at all. It's such a competitive market. Ninety nine percent don't. Yeah. It's very yeah. difficult. Yeah. 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 I'm a huge fan of documentaries. So I, I'd, I'd really like to talk with you about that. I think Werner Herzog is another one of those famous people that I would love to to hang out with. Uh, I don't necessarily think we'd enjoy each other's. Co I don't think he'd enjoy my company, but I'd enjoy his. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think we we have very different visions of nature and this, you know, basic struggle of existence and all that. Um, well, good. That'll make it for a more a, interesting conversation, right? There's nothing more more boring yeah. than watching two people who agree with everything in in writing comedy. You, if you have two people who agree and understand the same thing, there's no scene. They have to disagree about something. Right. Right. Yeah. My dinner with Andre. Classic example. I mean, they're friends, but they disagree the whole time and they have fundamentally different visions of reality. Yeah. Interesting. All right, Roger. Thank you. I'm going to stop recording okay, now. Good uh, talking. Wh where, where can people, is there like a central, I don't remember. Do you have a website where all your stuff is in one place? My name, rogernygard.com. N-Y-G-A-R-D. That'll give you links to all of my films, The Nature of Existence, The Truth About Marriage, Suckers. And, of course, you know, just search for any of those films on Amazon or Vimeo and you'll find them. Okay, cool. Highly recommended. All right, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to check out trendswithbenefits.com uh, for the uh, Trends with Benefits podcast and the newsletter. And... Uh, episode 80 of Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. That's all I'm going to say. 
Uh, the rest is for my mom and Carsey Blanton. Take it away, Mom. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 